friends, and welcome to the Caroline Gleick Show. Caroline here, I'm your host. On this podcast, we're going to be exploring a variety of topics from adventure and activism, climate change messaging, mountaineering, skiing, relationships, and how we can use sport to change the world. I am so excited to introduce my guest today. Dr. Naomi Oreskes is one of my personal heroes. She's a total rock star in the world of climate change science. According to the New York Times, Dr. Oreskes is fast becoming one of the biggest names in climate science, not as a climatologist, but as a defender who uses the tools of scholarship to counter what she sees as ideologically motivated attacks on the field. Her 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt, covers the parallels between climate change denial and controversies over tobacco smoking, acid rain, and the hole in the ozone layer. The book was made into a film in 2014. Reading her book helped me find my voice on climate again after years of ad hominem attacks by trolls and deniers. Dr. Oreskes is a professor of the History of Sciences and affiliated professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. A world-renowned geologist, historian, and public speaker, she's a leader in communicating climate science to the wider public. She's also a rip and skier and outdoors woman. I met Naomi on a trip to Washington, D.C. this past fall with Protect Our Winners, where she serves on the board of directors, and we instantly bonded. Like me, Dr. Oreskes is petite in stature, but don't let her size fool you. She has more courage and bravery than most people I know. And I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. All right, let's get right into it. One of the biggest questions that I hear from people, they want, they, they're concerned about climate change and they want to know, how can I get involved as a climate activist? Well, I think there's two things people can do. One is that as an individual, there are a number of things you can do in your own personal life that make a difference. So for example, you can reduce the amount of meat that you eat. If you can afford it, you can buy an electric car. And if you can't afford that, you can try to drive less. Uh, If you own a home or even if you have an apartment, you can install high efficiency um, LED lights. So there are many things we can do as individuals. And many of these are things that are uh, cost effective You save money doing them. Plants generally cost less than meat. Uh, LED lights save you money on your electricity bill. So there are many things you can do as an individual. However, ultimately, individual action is not enough because many of the issues we face in addressing climate change are structural issues, issues about how electricity is generated in this country, issues about where our public investment goes, issues about why fossil fuels are so heavily subsidized. And to address those structural issues, we have to become politically engaged as well. So what are some things that people can do to get politically involved? Well, one thing that I've done, as you pointed out, and it's how we got to know each other, is by joining an organization, in our case, Protect Our Winters. I joined Protect Our Winters because I thought it was a very cool organization. I loved the idea of fighting to fight climate change, a bad thing, by focusing on something we love, a good thing, namely winter and winter sports and outdoor sports. So by focusing on the positive message that we're fighting to protect and preserve something we love, something we care about, something that's fun and beautiful and wonderful, we can sort of avoid the depressing gloom and doom aspects of the issue. So I joined Protect Our Winters. I've been involved with the organization for I don't know, I think about 10 or 11 years now, maybe something like that. Um, And that's been a great place for me 
to focus on this message of taking the problem really seriously, but finding a positive approach to the solution. I love that. Yeah, it's really nice to be able to have a positive spin on things because it can be hard to maintain positivity with climate activism at times. So another really common question that I get is how do you recommend we talk to someone about climate change who doesn't believe it's real? Well, this is a complicated issue, as you know, and I think the answer is it depends on who the people are. So I guess the way I think of it is I think of the people we speak to as falling into a couple of different categories. And the two most useful categories to my thinking are people who are genuinely interested, but perhaps confused versus people who are hostile. The first category is obviously easier. There are a lot of people out there in my experience who are open-minded about the issue, but they don't really know what to think. They've heard a lot of disinformation about the issue. And so one of the most important things we can do is to call out disinformation, to say, this is not a real scientific debate. This is an organized disinformation campaign by people whose vested interests are threatened by action on climate change. And in my experience, when you when you point that out to people, when you explain it and show them the evidence, many people are interested in, in hearing about that. Because let's face it, climate change denial is a big con game, and nobody likes to be conned. Nobody likes to be on the losing end of a con game. So if you can show people that that's what this is, that's what we tried to do in the film version of Merchants of Doubt, then I find many people have the reaction, well, that really sucks, and I don't want to be the victim. I don't want to be on the losing end of a con. Now, if people are hostile uh, and angry, that's a somewhat different, different and harder thing to talk about. Sometimes you will find that people are so angry and so hostile that, frankly, it's just not worth it. You could spend hours, you could spend days, you could spend years trying to explain climate science to them, trying to explain the role of the fossil fuel industry and disinformation, and it would probably have no effect. So it might not be the best use of your time. So I think in any case you come up against, there's a judgment call to be made about whether the people you've met are interested in a good faith conversation, in which case it's definitely worth your while to try to engage them, or if it's just going to be a lost cause and then you move on. With the disinformation running so rampant now on social media, what are some ways that people can discern between credible information and misinformation to prevent the spread of misinformation? Well, of course, it's very difficult. As you say, there's so much misinformation out there and social media has made it more complicated because now there are so many different sources of information and disinformation, and it can be very hard to sort them out. So... Of course, an easy solution is that people should follow you and me on Twitter <laughs> and only click through to the things we send out because we're obviously reliable and trustworthy. But uh, short of that, the important thing is to go to trustworthy sources of information. So if you're interested in a scientific question, you have to go to the scientific sources. And that means the scientific societies like the American Geophysical Union or the American Meteorological Society, or the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or the National Academy of Sciences. All of these organizations now have web pages that explain the science. NASA has a very excellent web page uh, that my co-author Eric Conway helped to write on the scientific evidence of climate change. So there are credible scientific sources, and most of them are things you already know about. I mean, everyone's heard of NASA. So you can go to NASA, you can Google NASA climate change evidence and get a really great web page that will answer many of your questions. 
any other source that's not a scientific source, you probably have to be a little skeptical. If you're interested in politics, if you're interested in technical solutions, then of course it becomes more complicated. But for the science, you need to go to scientists. That's great advice. So what is your response to people who say, I don't believe in climate change? Well, that's just silly because climate change isn't a question of belief. It's not like, uh, do you believe in Santa Claus? Do you believe in magic? Uh, Do you believe in God? These are questions of faith, philosophy. uh, But climate change is about the facts of nature. It's about the laws of nature. Nature doesn't really care what we think. I mean, if you jump out of a 10-story window, you're not going to be engaged in a discussion about whether you believe in gravity. You're going to hit the ground before you even have a chance to have that mental conversation. So I think one of the things that we see clearly, we're seeing it very clearly right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we can ignore the facts of nature, we can dismiss and deny scientific information, but we do so at potentially very great cost. And I think what we're living through right now is the proof positive. If we didn't, if we needed the proof, it's now in front of our eyes. When you disregard scientific evidence information, people suffer and ultimately people die. Yeah, that it's it's so true. I mean, it's such an interesting time right now with the parallels between COVID-19 and climate change. Do you want to elaborate more on that? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that's really heartbreaking about the present situation is how many people are going to die unnecessarily. If the US government had paid attention back in January when experts first began to say that there was this very serious new emerging virus in China, that it was almost certainly already in the United States, that people had essentially no immunity to it, and that unless we took some pretty serious steps right away to prepare for it, we would see massive morbidity and mortality. That advice was ignored by the Trump administration, and now we are seeing rates of the disease that match, that are as bad or worse as anywhere else in the globe. And we know that it didn't have to be that way, because if we look at South Korea, where the government did pay attention to the scientific advice, did heed the advice of experts, and did take steps to control the spread of the virus, they're having, excuse me, they're having a much better outcome, many fewer cases, and it looks like many fewer deaths than what we are now already seeing in the United States. How then, going forward, can we transform the learnings from this pandemic into addressing the problems of climate change? Well, I think the lessons are pretty obvious. Scientific experts exist to give us good information about science. There's no other reason why scientists do what they do. They're not in it for the money. I know I used to work in the mining industry. I could have made a whole lot more money if I'd gone to business school. In fact, that's what most people I knew in the industry advised me to do. In fact, people thought, people said to me, why are you getting a PhD? You'll make so much more money if you get an MBA. Well, it's not always about money, right? Scientists do what they do because they love They love science, they love the feeling of understanding the natural world, and they give advice on these questions because they want people to be able to use information to make their lives better. So anyone who says, you know, scientists have some kind of nefarious ulterior motive must be a person who's never actually spent time with scientists, because I don't know a single scientist who, for whom that would be true. But what this also shows us is that when we ignore scientific evidence, people suffer, and they suffer unnecessarily. And it also shows us the urgency of timing. If we had acted even eight weeks earlier on the COVID pandemic, we would have a very different outcome. So now if we look at climate change, 
it's too late for early action. It's 30 years too late for that. I mean, the time to act in a precautionary manner was back in 1988 when scientists first started saying the climate change was underway. So that horse has left the barn. But there's still time for us to respond in a way that could help us avoid the worst case. So in some sense, it's very similar to COVID-19. We here in the United States are now looking at a worst case scenario because we delayed. And that's the exact same thing that's happening now with climate change. So this is an absolute clarion call for the importance of not delaying, not procrastinating any longer. And now if anyone has doubted the reality, the significance of early action, COVID-19 has made it absolutely crystal clear. And, and I'd say one more thing about that. One thing that's been hard about climate change is that, and I think you know this yourself, Caroline, you've experienced this. When you try to talk about how bad this could be, you get accused of being a doomster, of doom mongering, of gloom and doom. Nobody wants to hear it. People want an optimistic story. People want to be upbeat. They want you to be upbeat. They want you to be friendly and sweet and nice and happy. And, you know, we all were raised with the uh, power of positive thinking. So it's very difficult to talk to people about a really hard, negative, bad thing. But I think COVID-19 has shown us that we have to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, then we won't know what we need to do. Absolutely. That is, um, yeah, I you, I love the clarity that you speak about these issues because it can seem so overwhelming, but you really make it, I don't know, you have a great way of communicating. We'll get more into some of the action items. I wanted to just ask a few more questions about climate and COVID-19. So do you think that there's a relationship between climate change and COVID-19? Not in how our reaction, but in the, the source. Yeah, that's a great question. I was just talking to some colleagues about that this morning. Um, one thing I've done, and I know you do it too, Caroline, we do a lot of homework. We try to make sure we really understand the science fully before we talk about it in public. That makes it sometimes hard to answer certain kinds of complicated questions like this one. So I think that um, there's still a lot more to learn about where this virus came from. But, but I have heard a number of colleagues who are in the know who are making the argument that if it's not specifically related to climate change, it is related to the Anthropocene. And what they mean by that is we live in a world where increasingly humans are taking over everything. You know, we're cutting down the forests, the rainforests where lots of tropical plants live. We're cutting down the forests in China where bats and other wild animals live. And we're increasingly encroaching on the habitat of wild creatures so that they are forced then to live in close proximity to us. And this increases the probability that a virus such as this COVID-19 virus can jump, can make the leap from a wild animal to humans. And we have apparently seen this. Again, I'm, I'm now speaking based on things I've heard from colleagues who are experts on this. So I'm not personally an expert in this area, but this is what my colleagues are telling me, that many of the big viruses that we've seen in recent years, like H1N1, uh, SARS, and possibly also AIDS, almost certainly began in animal species and then jumped to human species. We are apparently seeing more of that these days. And if that's the case, then it is telling us that this destruction of the natural environment that we are pursuing with absolute abandon is coming back to bite us. So in that sense, it's not about climate change per se, but it is about the ways in which we're disregarding the natural environment and the need to find ways to coexist uh, with nature, with other animal species. 
Yeah, that's it's fascinating. I I uh, I've been reading some articles about that um, with different diseases, and it's a whole nother that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you just two more questions that I received from people on Instagram, and I hesitate to ask you this next question because the question is: Is the current slowdown helping at all against climate change? And the reason that I hesitate to ask you that is because some of the solutions that you propose and that protect our winners and other advocacy programs propose, they wouldn't have the same debilitating effects on the economy. And so I, as a climate activist, am hesitant to celebrate too much the reductions in carbon emissions from COVID-19. Well, that's a great question, and it's a great way of framing it, because of course, we don't want to celebrate the fact that people are suffering. I mean, that would be insane. And, and no one that I know in the space wants people to suffer, even though that you know, climate deniers love to accuse us of that, and it's completely preposterous. So the fact that people are suffering from the economic downturn is clearly a bad thing. But what the question does highlight, and I think this is legitimate, is that carbon emissions, climate change are associated with economic activity. And that economic activity is not given in nature. We make choices about what we do. We make choices about how much we travel and how we travel. We make choices about manufacturing, about how we generate electricity. And it doesn't have to be the way it is. So the downturn in the economy now is not good from the standpoint of people's lives. But, um, you know, people are surviving. People are not People are dying from COVID-19, but they're not dying from having to work at home. So it does raise the point, and I think this is a good point, that we, we can make changes in the way we live. And I think one of the heartening things about the last few weeks is to see how many people have step, stepped up to the plate and voluntarily changed their lives in really dramatic ways because it was the right thing to do. So we often hear people in America saying, oh, you know, the problem with climate change is you're asking people to sacrifice for the common good and nobody's going to do that. People are just too selfish. Well, we've seen the last few weeks that that's just not true. Most people are actually very willing to sacrifice for the common good, particularly if they are given compelling information and clear information about what it is they need to do. There's a beautiful silver lining there. I love that you were able to find a positive there because, yeah, I've just been, it's been a conundrum for me of like, how do we rectify that balance of all these people suffering? So the next question is from another um, Instagram Q&A, and it is, how long would quarantine measures need to stay in place to make a significant difference on Earth? On Earth in terms of climate change? Yes, as yes. To, I oh. mean, we're already seeing yeah. like... Um, big reductions in carbon emissions and they're, you know, the, right. yeah, go, I'll let you go. Yeah. Well, that's a tricky question because the honest answer to that is they have to be permanent, right? It's not enough to just reduce emissions. We have to eliminate emissions. And this is something that uh, if people are interested, Hal Harvey wrote a great paper some years ago called the trillion tons. And I could maybe put it out on Twitter or send it to you, Caroline, to put out on Instagram um, and he stresses the point that a lot of people miss. It's not enough simply to flatten emissions. We actually have to eliminate el emissions because climate change isn't driven by how many emissions are happening this week, this month, or this year. They're driven by the accumulated emissions in the atmosphere, the total amount of CO2 that has built up over the last 150 years. So if we wanted to maintain the benefits that have come from the current economic slowdown, we would have to do it forever. And that's clearly not plausible. 
So that's why this, that's why the idea of a conversion to a green energy economy is so crucial. It's not that we want to shut down the economy. That's not a plausible solution. It's that we need to transform the economy so we can continue to travel and manufacture and teach and do all the good things we want to do and ski and climb mountains, but do it in a way that doesn't produce carbon dioxide emissions. And that can be done, but it's going to require a lot of political will, a lot of social will, and changes in our policies, changes in government policies. Ha. Well, because if we don't, we die. I mean, let's face it. I feel like I've been talking about science, you know, pretty much all my professional life. Uh, and, you know, I've tried to make the point that climate change is actually a matter of life and death. But until pretty recently, people didn't really feel it because climate change always seemed sort of abstract. It seemed far away, either in time or in space, or be, or because the causal links were complicated. So you'd have a hurricane and the hurricane would kill people. And it's not necessary that the climate change directly caused that hurricane, but the climate change increased sea surface temperatures, which increased the amount of energy available to generate a large storm, which created a large storm, which led to people flooding, which led to people's deaths. So it was related to climate change, but it was always a little bit complicated to explain the causal link, which had many steps. So now we're in a crisis. People are dying, even as we speak. And... I feel like I don't know what more a person can say. I mean, this is a virus that scientists saw. They saw it coming. They saw it emerging. They warned the government. They told the government what we needed to do to prevent this from becoming a worst case scenario. The government refused to do it for political and ideological reasons. And now we're going to see certainly at least 100,000 deaths in this country, maybe 200,000, maybe a quarter of a million. I mean, this is unprecedented in our lifetimes. This is I mean, think about it, about what is it, 40, 50,000 soldiers died in the Vietnam War. We're going to see at least twice that many civilians killed by this pandemic, if not four or five times that. And how that could possibly be, be viewed as okay when it could have been avoided, right? I mean, if this were all completely unavoidable, then we would simply have to say life is tough. Sometimes bad things happen. But probably 100,000 people or more are going to die in this country these are totally preventable deaths, and they could have been prevented if our government had taken the advice of our scientific experts. I don't know how to put it more plainly than that. No, that's that's very, um, very succinct. And yeah, it's a great explanation. So now tell me about the paper you published, the first ever paper on the scientific consensus on climate change. <sighs> okay, well, that's going back a few years. So back in the early 2000s, I was working on the history of uh, oceanography. And in the process of doing that work, I, I stumbled across early work that scientists had done on the question of anthropogenic climate change. This was work that scientists were doing back in the 1950s. And so I became interested in that. I became interested in what was the scientific evidence for man-made climate change, how did scientists know that this was happening? Why did they even start studying in the first place? And I discovered that it was pretty clear that among scientists, there was essentially no argument that climate change was real, that it was happening, that it was caused by human activities, mostly burning fossil fuels and deforestation. And this was around the year 2003. So I gave a talk on the issue and um, when I, it was at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, it was about the question of consensus in science. And I pointed out that there was a consensus on climate change. 
And it was a very long, detailed lecture, about an hour long. And at the end of the talk, the only thing anyone wanted to ask about was this claim that there was a scientific consensus on climate change. And I realized that this seemed controversial to people because in the public conversation and the way the issue was being presented in the media was that this was a big, highly contested, highly controversial scientific debate. And what I, so I decided to undertake a study to try to demonstrate or to ask the question, is there a consensus on this issue or not? And my study showed, so I analyzed um, close to a thousand peer-reviewed scientific papers asking the question, how many of these papers disagree with the consensus statement that had been issued by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences on this question? And the answer was none, that there was no substantive scientific disagreement in the scientific community. So that told me that the debate that people were referring to was not a scientific debate, that there was a political debate, a cultural debate, a social debate going on about the issue, but it was not a scientific debate. And so I published that in a peer-reviewed journal, the journal of science, the leading scientific journal in the United States. And when I published that, I became the target of attacks. So nowadays, all of us who are involved in climate change in this space, we know that we will get attacked on Twitter or social media, that people will say mean things about us, that they'll question our motivations. But back in 2003, 2004, this was not really known. And in fact, this was before Instagram and before Twitter and before really most of the social media that we have today. I guess Facebook already existed, but only teenagers were on it. Um, so it was very shocking. And, and part of the reason I ended up becoming a climate change activist was in response to these attacks. I didn't set out to be an activist. I set out to explain something scientific that I thought was important for people to know. But life thrust me into a different role. And so that's, so that's kind of how I came to do the work that I'm doing today and why I'm here talking to you. How did you deal with those attacks? Because, I mean, this is something that I ask a lot of my guests, and it's something I've struggled with a lot in my own career. It was hard at first. It certainly wasn't fun. It was somewhat frightening. Um, I do remember there was one point at which I thought about taking out legal insurance. Um, it was a frightening time. It was a scary time. I got sick at one point. But I also talked to some people about it, and I think one of the lessons I've learned from my experience is the importance of reaching out to other people. Because when I began to talk to people, I discovered that I was not alone, that there were other people who had also been attacked. And in fact, the people who had been attacked were incredibly amazing people. So one of the people who I got to know as a result of this was Sherwood Rowland, who was one of the three key scientists who predicted in the 1970s that a certain group of chemicals, the so-called chlorinated fluorocarbons, would destroy stratospheric ozone. Most people who know the story consider Sherry Rowland to be a hero. He won the Nobel Prize for this work. He became very famous. And he was in part responsible for the policy actions that led to protect the ozone layer. He was also an incredibly nice guy. And as a result of what happened to me, I got to know him and ultimately to call him a friend. And he wasn't the only one. I started meeting a whole group of scientists who had done important work on climate change, on the ozone hole, on acid rain, on pesticides, all of whom had been attacked. And it turned out that almost all of us had been attacked by the same people. 
And so that was the beginning of the realization that these attacks were not random. They weren't attack, you know, they weren't singling me out because they were sexist or something like that, but that actually this was part, part of an organized campaign to discredit scientific work that pointed to the need for environmental regulation. And as I began to realize that there was a pattern, uh, that's when the idea for a book began to develop. And the result was my book, Merchants of Doubt, um, which you talked about in the introduction. That book has been very successful. I think we can say it's had a fair amount of impact. So even though it was a frightening time, it ended up leading to a lot of really good and important things. So I guess my message for anyone who's being attacked is, yes, it is scary. And yes, you probably, if you are going to be a public figure, might want to take out legal insurance. Might not be a bad idea. But if you reach out to other people who have been in this space, you can really learn a lot from their experience and, and you can make important contributions by exposing these attacks for what they are. That is fabulous advice. And when I was dealing with my own cyberbullying situation, it took me a long time to realize that I could talk about it publicly. And the moment that I did, I found that there were a number of other people in my community who were experiencing the same trolling and the same attacks by the same person. And all of a sudden, I went from feeling completely powerless to finding my voice again and finding that sense of personal power. And so I really love that advice. And I think that out of those hard moments, sometimes we create our best work. And that's clearly been the case for you with Merchants of Doubt. And I'll link to that book in the show notes. Definitely. Let me ask you a question, Caroline, though. What what do you think what do you think inhibited you from speaking out about it when it first happened? You know, I uh, I think it took me a while to realize that what it really was and that was criminal harassment or criminal stalking rather. Um, uh, you know, the first couple of years the guy was the person um I know most of the time I think it's I hate to say more men than women doing it, but I know there have been women who do it as well, but the person their comments were really sarcastic and they were hard sometimes to discern like I don't know, it was so sarcastic and it was like really designed to get under my skin that it was hard for me to understand if it was a real person because I tend to interpret things quite literally. Um, it, like it, whether it was someone really asking a question or whether it was um, an attack. And so, but after a while, and then once I got the phone calls, I realized I put it all together and I was like, whoa, no, this is, this is a whole nother level. But I think that there's part of me that just thought like, oh, this means I've made it. This is what happens to everyone once they get a certain amount of followers or like I tried to rationalize it in my mind instead of really like lean into how it made me feel and realizing that it was indeed something nefarious and criminal. Yeah, I think this is really important because I think almost all of us have a tendency to take criticism personally and and criticism hurts. So if we're hurting, we're, we're in a vulnerable position and that's not the kind of position that then would make us feel strong about reaching out to other people. So it's really important for people to realize that if you get attacked, it isn't actually personal. It's not about you as a human being. It's about this issue and the way in which climate change threatens people's identity, their politics, their desire to drive a big truck or eat a lot of red meat or whatever it is, right? People feel threatened on all kinds of different levels about this issue. And as you said, sadly, it is often men. I think there are men who feel threatened by women in positions of knowledge and authority. And that's a real thing that we have to acknowledge and deal with. 
but I think the most important thing is to realize it's not that you did anything wrong. In fact, it's actually the opposite. You're getting attacked because you did something right. You're saying something that's true and important, and you're saying it clearly, and that is threatening some vested interests, and that's why they're coming after you. So I noticed this when I started talking to the scientists who had been attacked. A couple of them said, yeah, they felt terrible because you know, scientists take a lot of pride in the quality of their work. They work hard to get the science right. And if someone starts attacking them and saying, oh, you did the science wrong, you know, I don't like the way you analyze those data. I don't agree with your conclusions. Many of the scientists, their first instinct was to think, oh, my God, maybe I did something wrong and to feel bad or to feel like they have to go back and recheck their data. Now, of course, nothing wrong with rechecking your data. If someone questions your facts, not a bad idea to double check to, just to make sure. But it's really important to know that the fact that you're being attacked in some weird way is actually a validation of the significance and importance of what you're doing. Yeah. And then there's just so much healing, like you expressed before, that can be found in community and opening up about your experience because chances are there's someone else who's going through the same thing. So I really love that advice. And thank you for sharing that experience with us. I wanted to move on to the next question. And that is, what are the big lies about climate change denial? Oh, well, there's a lot of big lies. I've spent the last 20 years talking about many of these lies. So let me see if I can sum them up. Uh, the first big lie is that it's not real, that it's a hoax, that it's not happening. Uh, second big lie is, well, maybe it's happening, but we don't know what's causing it. Maybe it's natural variability. Maybe it's just changes in the sun. It's sunspot cycles. Uh, or maybe it's caused by volcanoes. Third big lie is, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it's caused by people, but we can't fix it. It would be too expensive to fix, or the technology to fix it doesn't exist, or we could fix it, but it would wreck the economy or it would cost jobs. Uh, and then a fourth big lie, climate change deniers are really communists who are trying to take over the government and control your lives and turn America into a communist dictatorship. So all of those lies coexist. You see climate change deniers recycling them, moving through them. One day they'll use one, another day they'll use another. Sometimes I've seen how just when one of these lies seems to fade away, like the whole lie about it's not real had actually to some extent faded away because these, the evidence of the reality of climate change was so overwhelming and it was getting to the point where even ordinary people could see in their own lives the way the climate was changing, that spring was coming earlier in lots of places or that lakes that used to freeze were no longer freezing or that summer rains were just much heavier than they used to be. So people were seeing it with their own eyes and the idea that it wasn't real became increasingly implausible. And then yet with Donald Trump, suddenly it was back again. So one of the things I think we've learned is you can't assume that just because one big lie has been refuted, that your work is done and now you can, in a way, move on to something else. No, all these lies keep cropping up. It's like the game whack-a-mole. You have to be prepared to address all of them, sometimes even all at the same time. And I've heard, I've heard people use them all at the same time. So they'll, at the same breath, they'll say it's not real, and it's caused by natural variability. Well, those two things are logically incompatible, and yet I have heard climate change deniers use them both at the same time. What do we need to do to fix the problem of climate change? 
Yes, that's a big one. So what do we need to do? We need to do a few things. Job one is that we need to convert our energy system away from carbon-based fuels, oil, gas, and coal, and to renewable energy, to fuels that don't generate carbon emissions. That can be done. The technology to do it largely exists. Solar and wind are now cost competitive on the open market. In fact, in many places in the world, wind and solar are now cheaper than fossil fuels. So there's no economic argument against renewable energy any longer. Renewable energy also generates jobs, and they're good jobs that can't be outsourced. So things like solar panel installations or wind turbine maintenance. These are all good jobs that are growing. The green energy sector is the fastest growing sector of the American economy right now. Uh, I don't know what's happening right at this very moment, but as of last year, growth rates were about 10 to 13 percent, which is a huge growth rate, much better than most aspects of the economy. But it needs a little help. We need to support the industry in a couple of ways. So one thing is that even though a lot of climate change skeptics and deniers will say that they're opposed to supporting renewable energy because they believe in the free market system, the reality is that energy is not a free market. It's never been a free market. Subsidies for fossil fuels are enormous. They're widespread and they've been around for a long time. So one of the key policy innovations we could do is simply to eliminate all subsidies to fossil fuels. That would be a big step in the right direction to level the playing field. The second thing we need to do, however, involves what economists call external costs, or sometimes they'll refer to them as negative externalities. That's a fancy term, a jargony term for the true cost of carbon. So when we burn coal, we pay a certain amount of money for a ton of coal, but we don't pay the true cost because that coal is polluting the air, causing respiratory illness. If you live in Salt Lake City, you know that there's all this tremendous air pollution, um, that air pollution does real damage, but the people who are burning that coal are not paying that. They're not paying the true cost. So virtually every economist I know says that one of the key things we need to do is to put a price on carbon. You can call it a carbon tax. You can call it a carbon price. You can do it through an emissions trading system, which is what they have in California, which is a little complicated, but it's the same. It's a different way of achieving essentially the same thing to make people pay the true cost so that we're not subsidizing fossil fuels um, and that we can create a level playing field. Because when, if we do that, renewables will beat the pants off of fossil fuels because the external costs are giant. They've been estimated in the trillions of dollars every single year. So if we could just deal with that, we wouldn't even need to subsidize renewables because they would win in an honest system where we paid the true cost. So a third thing we need to do is to do with energy storage. So lots and lots of studies show that we do have enough sunshine and enough wind in this country to power the whole country. We do. So anyone who says we don't, that's not true. However, as many people know, renewable energy does have one key defect or one key problem that's different than fossil fuels, and that's storage. Fossil fuels are easy to store. You can pile up coal. You can put oil and gas in a tank. You can fill the tank of your car with gasoline and be ready to roll the next morning. It's much more difficult to store sunshine and wind. It can be done. We can do it with batteries. We can do it with pump storage of water. Uh, we could do it with flywheels. There are many different ways we could store energy. But right now, storage is expensive, particularly battery storage is expensive and it's inefficient. So we need to improve storage. And that's where I think the government 
can play a really positive role. A major research and development initiative on energy storage, my vision is something like the Apollo program, but for energy storage. It may not be as glamorous as sending men to the moon, but it's essential for our future well-being. It's one of those technical details. It's not exciting and glamorous, but it could be transformative. A major investment in energy storage can make all the difference between whether solar and renewables just do a part of the job. Right now, they're about 20% of our electricity generation or whether they could do the whole thing. One, I'll give you one more and then I'll stop. Obviously, there's a lot of things we could do, but these are the three most important. Um, the fourth one is to do with food. Um, and this in some ways is the best one because it's something we can all begin today. So meat is very, very carbon intensive, particularly beef. Beef cattle are very inefficient animals. It takes a heck of a lot of energy to make a pound of meat. If you reduce the amount of meat that you eat in your diet, you can decrease your own carbon footprint pretty dramatically starting tonight. And it will be better for your health as well, because we have tremendous amounts of scientific evidence that a diet that is mostly plants, doesn't have to be completely plants, but mostly plants, is much healthier as well. So if all of us began to change the way we eat to make our diet focused on plants, we don't have to become vegans or vegetarians, but to decrease the amount of meat we eat, also milk and dairy products, uh, this would go a substantial way towards solving the problem. There are other things as well, but those are kind of the big four, in my opinion, based on my reading of the scientific literature. That's great. There is so much in there I would love to talk about more. So I wanted to have you elaborate on something I heard you say when we were in Washington, D.C., when you testified to the House. Um, and you said coal is a 19th century technology. Oil and gas are 20th century technologies and renewables are the energy of the 21st century. So can you elaborate on that? Well, thanks for reminding me of that because uh, I sort of had forgotten that I'd said that and I really like that. So I, I love I that. It's it. so succinct. Yeah. Right. Well, one of the things about history and technology, which is good, is that the world changes, right? And one of the things that I think it's useful to remind people is that we have changed our energy sources in the past. And in fact, those changes have always been for the better. I mean, oil and gas were cleaner, better, more efficient than coal. And the renewable energy economy is going to be cleaner, better, and more efficient than oil and gas. But the difference now is that we made the transition, and before coal, we made a transition from wood to coal, and that was good too. But before, in these transitions were almost entirely market-driven. There were some policies, particularly with respect to oil and gas, that supported the transition. Certainly, oil and gas use in America was supported by investment in the highways, which encouraged the use of automobiles. But these previous changes were mostly market-driven. So we're in a slightly different situation now where we have a newer, better technology available to us. We can envision a really positive future based on clean, green energy, but we need some policy support to get over the hump, to get over the transition. Because one of the things we know from the history of technology is that when a new technology comes about, even if it's better, it's very hard to get people and markets to adopt it. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of it is just habit, like we're all in the habit of driving cars. So even if we could have a better system of light rail, it's hard for us to make that transition because we like the flexibility of our automobiles. Or even if an electric car is better, which in fact they are, 
we're just used to the convenience of being able to gas up anywhere we, we want to and not having to think ahead about where we're going to recharge. So getting over that hump, the inconvenience hump, the inertia hump, and also the upfront investment from hump. Because as you know, uh, electric cars are great. They're better, they're faster, they're cleaner, they're quieter than internal combustion engines, but they tend to cost a little bit more or sometimes a lot more upfront. And that's a real hurdle for people. So how do we fix that? Well, again, this is where government and policy come in. One way you can fix it is by having the government invest in charging stations. Uh, and that could be done on the state or the federal level. Another way you can do it is tax credits for uh, electric cars, which uh, the state of California has been very assertive in doing that, or tax credits for installing solar panels. You need policies to help you get over that hump. They don't have to be there forever, but they have to be there long enough to actually manage the transition. One of the problems we've seen in the United States is that sometimes Congress will pass a tax credit for solar energy or something like that, but then it's only for a couple of years, and that's not long enough. We know from the history of technology that large-scale technological transitions usually take at least a decade, sometimes two or three. So we have to commit to these incentives and not phase them out prematurely. So it requires policy, and again, some of those policies can be done on the state or even the local level. Some of them... Well, most of them will at least be more effective if they're done on the federal level, because then you have a level playing field and a consistent, strong signal to both individual consumers and to the business community. That's a great. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else you brought up during your talk. And this is a real sexy topic. As you said, it's grid integration. <laughs> grid integration. And how can <laughs> grid integration help address the intermittency of renewables? <laughs> Thank you. I know. Uh, yes, as, as you say, I love to point out this is really sexy. Well, sometimes you have to get people to pay attention to something that seems technical, that might on the face of it seem boring, but actually is really important. So grid integration is related to the energy storage issue. So as I've already mentioned, one of the challenges of renewable energy, probably the chief challenge, is the intermittency problem, that the sun doesn't always shine, unless you're even in Southern California, and the wind doesn't even always blow, even in Oklahoma. So how do you handle that? So there's two things you can do. One is to store the energy with batteries or other forms of storage. But the other is to connect the grid. Because it turns out that while it is the case that the sun is not always shining and the wind is not always blowing, somewhere in North America, the sun is actually always shining or the wind is always blowing. And there are now studies that look closely at American weather patterns that have demonstrated this. So if you can integrate the grid, that is to say, connect the electricity grids all across the country and ideally including Canada and Mexico as well, somewhere in North America at any given moment, the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, or if you include Canada, hydroelectric power is flowing. And if you can move the electricity from one place to another, you can address a very substantial part of the intermittency problem, possibly even all of it. But this requires investment because it means the grid has to be upgraded. And so, again, the question becomes, who's going to do that upgrading? In theory, it would be great if the private sector would do it. But because, well, for a lot of reasons having to do with how electricity is generated and regulated, it's not something that the private sector is likely to do. The grid was not originally built by the private sector. It was built by the federal government. 
in order to integrate and upgrade it, you need to deal with a lot of interstate issues. So it's almost certainly something that can only re- really be done effectively and co- cost effectively by the federal government. So this is a case where we have to be able to stand up and defend big government. It's really fashionable in the United States to bash big government, to say that big government is a bad thing. But actually, sometimes big government is not only a good thing, sometimes it's essential to solve a problem. So we need to be able to be courageous and say, yes, we actually believe in big government to solve the problems that the private sector or the states alone can't solve. And grid integration is number one on my list of those problems. Well, I think we're seeing a great example of how people are turning to big government in times of distress with the bailout that was just passed last week. So, Exactly. Um, that's right. So I think it's going to be easier to make the argument for why sometimes we need big government. But then the thing though, is that there will also be people who say, I mean, we're hearing this already. The Economist just this week had an editorial that said this. OK, fair enough. We're in a crisis. We need big government right now. But as soon as the crisis is over, we have to bounce back to where we were before. Now, with the pandemic and with unemployment benefits, that might be true. But with the issue of climate change, it's completely wrong. For climate change, we need a large government response that's going to be sustained for the next decade until we get over that transition into the green energy economy. Well, there's so much good info in there. I'm so excited for people to listen to this. Um, The next question I have is, are we past the tipping point to do anything about this? Ah. Well, that's another tough question because, of course, most scientists don't think that there is a tipping point. They think that there are a number of different tipping points for different aspects of the climate change problem. So, for example, one tipping point is the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is already showing signs of instability. But there's a possibility that we could see a rapid disintegration of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which would lead to huge amounts of sea level rise, meters of sea level rise uh, that would dislocate tens, if not hundreds of millions of people around the globe. If that happens we have moved into the territory of climate change catastrophe. And this is one of the very difficult parts of this issue. No one knows whether, if or when that will happen. Many scientists believe that it definitely could happen, but even there they argue about, are we talking about something that would happen a thousand years from now, a hundred years from now, or maybe as little as 50 years from now. So there are big uncertainties about these tipping point issues. And this is one reason why, personally, I don't spend a lot of time talking about them, because I think it's quite easy to get bogged down in details that you can't actually resolve. But what we do know is that if we don't transform our energy system soon, we're going to certainly reach a point where we will go way past the two degree threshold that scientists have identified as a kind of upper limit for avoiding a worst case scenario. And that that's what the argument of the recent report that has been talked about a lot, the so-called 1.5 degree report of the IPCC that told us, well, two years ago, they told us we had 12 years left. So now we're down to 10 years. Essentially what that report was saying was we only have about a decade left to make the big changes that will lead to very, very dramatic cuts in carbon emissions. And because it does take you know, at least a decade, if not a few decades, to transform the energy system, we can't wait until we can't wait until we get to that two degree level. It will be too late at that point. And so in that sense, I wouldn't say that we're past the tipping point, but I would say that we're increasingly approaching a point of no return. 
we have, to me, what's so sad about the history that I've studied and written about is that if we had started on this back in 1988, when Jim Hansen first tried to warn us about this problem, we could have solved this problem by now. I mean, 40, 30, 32 years is a lot of time in the history of technology. Now we have very little time left. And that's why this issue, frankly, can be kind of depressing because we've wasted so much time. But on the other hand, if people appreciate how much time has been wasted and if we get appropriately angry at the people who are responsible for this and if we channel that anger into work, then I still think there's there's the chance to be cautiously optimistic that we can avoid um, the sort of disaster scenario or maybe even avoid worse than that. Cautiously optimistic that we can fix this problem. Well, you laid out all the solutions so beautifully. I wanted to ask you how much this is going to cost? And is it too expensive? Well, you know, this is, of course, a difficult thing. I'm not an economist, and there are many different estimates of how much it will cost. But I think it's clear it's not too expensive because the alternative is catastrophe. I mean, look at what's just happened in the COVID-19 case. I mean, I think some people did resist the idea of stockpiling ventilators and masks because it would have been quite expensive. But look at what's happening now. You know, look at the huge losses to the economy, the trillion dollars that the federal government is going to have to use to bail out uh, people and businesses that have been so severely harmed by this. And look at the deaths. I mean, if we lose 100,000 or 200,000 of our fellow citizens, what's the value of that? I mean, what is the cost of that? So anyone who said three months ago that it was too expensive to stockpile masks, I think that person is probably hanging their head in shame right now. And I think we will feel the same way 10 years from now if we see, you know, if we see a meter of sea level rise and trillions of dollars of real estate and infrastructure lost in this country, then I think we will realize that it would have been much wiser to have spent a few billions up front than to lose trillions later on. Yeah, excellent analogy there. So what do you have to say to people who, you know, there's sort of this line of thinking with some environmentalists that's like this eco-fascism, where it's like population growth is the problem. So something that reduces population is good for the environment. Like, what is our answer to that? Yeah, I don't agree with that at all, not even a little. Um, I know there are some people who think that. Not too many people I hang around with think that, but I know that they are out there. I don't agree with it at all because it's really not about population. It's really about resource consumption, if you look at carbon dioxide emissions and methane emissions, the vast majority of those emissions come from about a dozen countries around the world, mostly the rich industrialized countries like the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, and now China, and to a lesser extent, India and Brazil. And even within those countries, if you look at carbon emissions, this is one of those things where the microcosm recapitulates the macrocosm. So even within the United States or within India, it's not everybody who's responsible for most of these emissions. It's mostly actually the wealthier among us. So if you look at a wealthy Indian, a rich Indian has a carbon footprint quite typically comparable to a rich American. So it's really about wealth. It's about how we spend our money and it's about how we consume. It's not the teeming masses of Nigeria or the poor people in Bangladesh who are responsible for this problem. So the places in the world where population growth is a big problem, like Bangladesh or Nigeria, are not, for the most part, the places that are driving climate change. Now, there are some exceptions to that, and there are some issues associated with deforestation, but 
to a first order approximation. So if we really want to fix the climate change problem, it's not about controlling population worldwide. It's about controlling fossil fuel consumption in the rich countries of the world. That's going to make me feel a lot better when I decide to have a child (laughs) because there's so many of my fellow environmentalists, you know, women and men that are coupled up that are like, I'm not going to have children because of the carbon footprint of children. And I've always just struggled with that, with just these different arguments. And it's always hard to figure out the best ways to respond. So I really appreciate you touching on that. I don't think that's right. I mean, look, if you don't want to have children, then don't have children. And there are probably some people who don't want children. And this gives them a cover story to tell their parents and in-laws. And that's (laughs) fine. You know, if you need a cover story, that's okay. But if you think about it, when we focus on population growth, in a way, we're blaming poor brown women around the globe, when really, this is largely a problem of rich white, mostly white men and women, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of just um, you kind of just hit on something I wanted to ask you about, and that is how's climate change related to gender equality and social justice? Yeah. Well, of course, we need another hour for that one. But I think the I know maybe version, we'll have to do that in another episode. Yeah, this would be a good excuse to do this again, because it's so much fun talking to you. But I would say the short version, anyone who's interested in that, the most eloquent, beautiful discussion of that is Pope Francis's encyclical on climate change and inequality. And he really, really nails it there in which he talks about the way in which climate change is also a problem of social justice. So, um, and I had the honor of writing an introduction for an American edition, the Melville House edition of that. Uh, So I think anyone who's interested in that problem, you can download the encyclical for free on the internet, or you could probably online find a used copy of the Melville House edition. Either way, it's so worth reading. um, And I think it really answers so many important questions on that topic. That's great. So is that is that something I can link to in the show notes? Oh yeah, if you just if you just uh well I'll, I'll I can find it and send it to you on the internet so you can link it. But yeah, I mean the the Vatican has made it available. You can freely download the PDF uh, from the Vatican website and I think they've translated it into a lot of different languages as well. So that's very easily accessible. I can send you that link for sure. Okay. I have a couple more questions. So I wanted now to go into talking about skiing because I had the pleasure of skiing with you at Snowbird this season, and I can't help but brag to listeners about what a ripping skier you are. Seriously, we had a big day together doing a lot of laps. And so I just wanted to hear you talk about your relationship with skiing. (laughs) Well, that's very generous of you to say that. Um, It was so fun being with you. I mean, really, it was a great day. And we were so lucky. We had such beautiful sunshine, Um, It was kind of a perfect day, perfect company, perfect mountain. Um, So thanks to the people at Snowbird for making that possible too. Um, Well, I think it gets back to what we were talking about before, about the gloom and doom versus the positive vision. This is a really tough issue, and it is depressing in ways. And it can be really sad thinking about – it can be really sad thinking about how serious this problem is. It can be sad thinking about the way people don't – want to take it seriously. And it can be sad thinking about the dishonesty of the fossil fuel industry and the merchants of doubt who have put us in this situation so unnecessarily. And it would be very easy to get demoralized. But at the same time, there is this positive part of the story, which is about fighting to protect the things we love. And the world is filled with so much beauty. And we all find, we all find the places in our lives that make us happy. You know, our, our, 
our happy place. And for some people, it's art. For some people, it's music or literature or poetry. But for me, it's always been being outside. It's why I became a geologist in the first place, because I just loved, I love being outside. I love the amazingness of the earth and the natural world. And I love the feeling geology was great because it gave you this feeling of kind of understanding how profound the earth and natural processes are. Um, when my daughter called me last week to say you guys had had an earthquake, my reaction was, oh, that's exciting. You know, and then she goes, mom, all the other moms were calling to make sure we were okay. And I was like, oh, well, you told me it was a magnitude 5.7. So I knew you were all right. <laughs> so, um, so for me, skiing, being outdoors, snow, I mean, I've always loved snow as a child. Winter was my favorite season to just be outside. I mean, I feel like snow is this miracle thing that, you know, this amazing thing that falls from the heavens and it's so beautiful and it, and the world becomes so quiet when it snows. And I grew up in New York city, which was an incredibly noisy place. And as a child, we always knew if it had snowed overnight because you'd wake up and before you'd even open your eyes, there was this very eerie silence. And my sister and I, whoever would wake up first would, would say to the other one, it snowed. And we'd always be so happy and so excited. And maybe we'd have a snow day and we could play in it. So it's just a reminder that, there's so much in life that's good and beautiful. And this is about fighting to protect the beauty in the natural world. At least that's how I think about it. I mean, there are other ways people can connect to the climate change issue. You don't have to be a skier to care about climate change. Uh, you could care about uh, jobs. You can care about the oceans. You can care about surfing, swimming. I mean, there's so many ways this connects to our lives. You can care about public health, the way air pollution affects children, the way air pollution affects children's brains. I mean, there is some way to connect to this issue, no matter what you, you know, whatever your passion is. But for me, it's that outdoor piece. It's being in beautiful places and enjoying, continuing to enjoy the miracle uh, that is skiing. That's wonderful. I loved how you talked about the quiet because that's something I appreciate so much after a big snowfall. Okay, I just have a couple. I have one more question that will go into the rapid fire. And the last question before we do that is how can we improve our message on climate, on social media, and in other ways we talk about it? Well, I think we're doing a much better job on messaging than, say, we did 10 or 15 years ago. I think the diversity of voices on climate change has been really helpful. Um, so I feel that that's a really positive space and I don't actually have any kind of, I don't think I really have too much to add. I think a lot of people are doing a great job now and I feel really heartened about that. Okay. I have five rapid fire questions. So the first one is favorite book or TV show or one of each. Favorite book or TV show? Well, uh, favorite book, Nadine Gordimer's Burger's Daughter. This is very relevant to what we've been talking about. It's a book about a woman whose parents are big anti-apartheid activists in South Africa. And this woman, as she's growing up, is trying to figure out what her place in the world is and how much responsibility she can bear for a very difficult and challenging problem. That book has always been a touchstone for me. And it's a book I've come back to in recent years because of the challenge of climate change. So Nadine Gordimer, Berger's Daughter. Great. Okay. Favorite color? Green. Absolutely. No question about it. It's always been green and it's still green. <laughs> and I embrace that. Anyone who wants to call me green, I'm all in. <laughs> Favorite food? Well, obviously chocolate and red wine. We're also fighting climate change. My favorite slogan from the People's Climate March was save the earth. It's the only planet with chocolate. That's awesome. Morning person or night owl? 
Uh, it's a very funny question because I'm neither. I'm not a super morning person, but I'm definitely not a night hour either. I'm definitely like very in the middle of the road on that one. So yeah, you don't have to be one extreme or the other. You can just kind of get up at 7.30, go to bed around 11, you know, that's me. I'm kind of the same way. I can relate to you on that. I like, I would like to be a morning person, but I think biologically I'm more wired to stay up at night, but yeah, it's, I can go either way. I don't like to get up in the dark. I think for me, the main thing is I like to get up when the sun is up and that's, that's, so I'll wake up earlier in the summer than the winter. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. It's hard to wake up at night for sure. It's fun to do every once in a while, but not every day. Okay. The last one is what is one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? spend more money on clothes. Oh. <laughs> I was very, um, I grew up in a period where we thought you had to be like either smart or pretty. And I think one of the downsides of the version of feminism that I grew up with was that if you paid attention to things like clothes, makeup, jewelry, that you were somehow not serious and that a serious feminist didn't pay attention to those kinds of things. And I think we missed out on a certain fun in life that you could have because like a nice dress could be a good thing. So I, I would be easier on myself in terms of things like that and not feel, not feel like I had to deprive myself and, and probably related to that, maybe just more generally, just kind of have a little more fun. I was very serious as a young person. I think I've come to appreciate, I sometimes feel like I'm living my life backwards because there's a stereotype that young people have fun. And as you get older, you get more serious, but I think I'm going the other way and I, and I'm liking it. Oh, I love that advice so much. And I love what you said too about being kind to yourself and being, I'm really happy we're at a place with feminism where you can be a more flexible version. And it's really about honoring the best versions of ourselves. So that's great. Okay. So how can people keep in touch, follow you? Twitter, is that the best way? Yep. I'm on Twitter. I, uh, I have an Instagram account, but it's kind of, I don't really use it because I don't have fun like ski videos to show people, but I am on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter and I do tweet out reports, scientific information, uh, comment on things to do with climate change and science. So yes, people can definitely follow me on Twitter. Um, and then they'll also know when I have new books. So people who are serious or even not so serious can read my books. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. It was so wonderful to hear all of this stuff, and I can't wait to share this with the world. Thank you. It's always great to spend time with you, Caroline. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to live. Special thanks to Avery Sandak for all the time he spent editing the audio on today's episode. To Rising Appalachia for generously providing the music for the opening and closing track. And to my partner, Rob Lee, for being quiet in the house where I'm recording. If you learned something from this episode, share it with a friend. Until next time.